happy that you uh wanted to come on to do this and even more thrilled that you said i you know i gotta tell you i'm so happy you sent me the book because sometimes people you know they want to come on and, and plug their books or whatever they've written and stuff like that but they they just they send like a pdf and i'm like can i just have something tangible i'll go buy it you know what i mean like but you were very I'm nice you offered to send yeah i want to hold something i want to i want to enjoy the book cover and and see all the pictures inside you know me too. I like a tangible thing myself. First of all, how are you? How have you been? I haven't. I think uh, first time you were on was in the middle of the pandemic, um, and so obviously a lot of has changes. Then, so how you been? I've been pretty good, actually. Seventy-four years old, and I can't believe they still want to work with me. Now the strike is over, I can actually enjoy that sentence. Yeah, I uh, congratulations on the uh, on that, by the way, because that was a hard and long fight that you guys had to endure doing it. There's a lot of stuff I've been hearing about it. I don't know if you can talk about any of that, but I, I feel like some people were complaining about all of you guys being kept in the dark. But otherwise, it seems to have been handled pretty well. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, it looks like obviously you guys won. Did you feel like you guys were left in the dark during that? No, I got regular emails and other I think a, a few texts from the union about where they're at with the negotiations. So I was very happy, you know, with the information I got. I didn't need to micromanage and be part of the negotiating team consulting group. You know, they knew what they were doing, right. the negotiators. So I stayed out of the way, let them do their thing. It looks like they did it pretty well. I thought that was going to go on forever. I really thought the writer's strike was going to be the one that, that dragged like on for a year at least. Me too. Um, obviously almost that, but that was, I'm, I'm glad they won. And then you guys kicked ass and won. So now everybody gets to go back to work, which I'm super thrilled about. And I can go back to doing um, what I, cause a lot of, I'll tell you this right now, which I want to talk to you about, but uh, when nothing was going on, a lot of actors kind of started to bleed into my area into stand up comedy. And I was like, this is not fair. You guys are way more famous than me. Yeah. Uh, like, the I system is rigged. I can't compete I know. with that. I know. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, they're like, what could we do to buy the time? Oh, yes. Stand-ups available. <laughs> we could sell out an arena or a club. I had a similar thing. I wrote a book. I thought it was a good timing to write a book. At the same time, huge stars, Britney Spears, Barbara Streisand, Henry Winkler, John Stamos. Uh, who am I forgetting? Yeah. Uh, lots of people. Everybody has a book suddenly. Yeah, Rachel yeah, Maddow, absolutely. For God's sake. Everybody, okay. Rachel Maddow's got a book. Yeah, everybody's getting into the racket. Um, it, it was, but I, I, you know, one of the things that I think I don't think we mentioned this because I looked back on the last episode that you were on, and it was one of the first parts in your book. I won't, I won't talk about it too much. Uh, but I had no idea that you did stand-up comedy, man. Uh, that blows me away. I, I is there footage of this that I can get? Is there any? Like, I have to know, like, because it, it sounds like you had a, a really good run. I loved it. Uh, there's no footage of it. There's an audio recording somebody just gave me. The tape is damaged. Yeah, the stand-up thing threw me for a loop because I always like that, like, there, there's a lot of, um, I feel like, successful actors who do the acting thing extremely well. And you guys dabbled in, like, like I didn't know until a few years ago that Michael Keaton did stand-up comedy. I had no idea. 
Like I, I just assumed he was another one of those guys who went straight to acting, but he dabbled in a little bit. I don't think he had the career that you did opening for a lot of those musicians and stuff, but um, yeah. Then, then I just, I'm reading this book and it says that you opened for um, everybody, every musician, like every, all of my heroes you were on the road with and doing nightclub stuff. Do you remember any of your jokes? I do sadly. And uh, they're oh. not worth repeating. But also, there was a woman named Jan Fisher that I mentioned in the book as being an inspiration to me yeah. at Valley College. Jan Fisher was in an improv group with Mark Genzel, Michael Keaton, uh, these wonderful, talented people that had an improv group. And uh, she always claimed, she being Jan Fisher, claimed, I should ask Michael if it's true because he's a friend of mine, that she came up with the idea of Keaton from Buster Keaton for his last name. He changed his name at some point from his birth name, which I right. can't remember what it is. His last name. Douglas, I think. I think you might be. Yeah, there's already a Michael Douglas in Screen Actors <laughs> Guild. Right. So uh, I think I think it was her that recommended Keaton, and he liked the sound of it and the rhythm of it, and so I think he kept it. I should confirm that story yeah. with Michael Keaton. Please take that with yeah, you, if please. you will. But, but Michael, give me a call. I'll let you know. Here, here's it. I'll, I'll send this to him. And here's a suggestion. You should both come back on and you can confirm it live on air. That'd be great. What a sweet man he is. <laughs> He's so talented. He's so wonderful. Such a good guy. Always been nice to me. You talk about uh, the advent of becoming, you know, socially active and aware and something your dad had said to you um, about like, what are you going to do about it? You know? Um, right. But, Not but just what are you against. Sorry, go ahead. John. Right. Not just what are you, no, 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 no. Not just what are you against, but what are you going to do about it? But the cool thing that I thought was interesting because, um, is you were you were saying it's there's a lot of negatives because a lot of stuff had happened in California the, uh, the you know the the fire on the lake and everything um and and a couple of things but you were like there's a lot of good so there's a lot of bad stuff happening right now and I feel like more than ever we're all inundated you know I doom scroll constantly on my phone all the all the terrible things are happening are you able to still do that to this day do you still find the positives and what do you think they are you kind of have to, because otherwise you're just destined for a life of misery. I mean, this is it. This mm -hmm. moment right now with you, John, is really all there is. My whole life has been oh. comprised of many, many trillions of moments like this one right now that you can choose to be in, accept, and, you know, revel in the bliss of. Otherwise, you're worrying about tomorrow and living in yesterday, and you don't want to do either of those. You can certainly remember the past so you don't make the same mistakes. You could plan for the future. Nothing wrong with that. So you can eat right. next year, have a nice harvest. But if you're growing, there's nothing wrong with planning and remembering some things. But you don't want to spend too much time in it. You want to make sure that you live as much as you can in the now, right now, right down through the center of this moment right now that we're experiencing together. And it's actually quite sublime. Otherwise, you can't get anything that accomplished with the Middle East or homelessness or the environment or any of these things that we want to solve unless you're really present. You can't be of help and yeah. of service in solving any of the problems. You have to be present, be in the now, and and that's the beginning of accomplishing any effective change. That, that's so beautiful. And that's the thing, too. Like, Does that come from Alan Watts? Because I know one of his quotes, Definitely. and it was something that had helped me out when I was in high school. I had read a quote by him, um, and, I, and I wrote it down so I just didn't – or just at least the end of it. Instead of calling it work, realize it's play. And that changed my attitude – towards a lot of stuff that I didn't really want to be doing while I was, while I was hoping to do something else. Like I always, you know, when I had to do day jobs, when I would rather be out acting or working or doing stand up, 
but I had to support myself doing doing like a day job at the time. I thought of that quote, like, okay, it's not work. It's all play. You can have fun with a stranger. You can have fun with a coworker. You can, you don't have to be burdened by, you know, the negativity of a situation. Is that where that comes from with you? Very much so. He was a very bright man, Alan Watson. He wrote a book called This Is It. And if you're in an enlightened mm -hmm. state of mind walking past the window of the bookstore and you looked in and saw the title and you're open enough to really listen to what it's saying, this is it. This moment again, this one right now again is all there is. Yeah. Everything else is an illusion. Right. The future is an illusion. The past is an illusion. And we're living in the now and you get to experience things and accomplish things. So you must do that. Right. If you don't, you're, you're going to miss it. People are constantly trying to get enlightened. You're already enlightened. Just accept that you are and be in the now as best you can. Yeah, that's a great. I, I like that you said that you're already enlightened because I, I, I kind of like feeling I'm ahead of the game. Yeah, <laughs> like you are. And I got to get your perspective on, on this because I you talked about your dad a lot, obviously. Um, and in the again, in the very beginning of the book, you mentioned um, that he was, you know, not really a, a chatty Kathy, no. as they say. You know what I mean? Like and he, and he comes from a different time. So, you know, it's understandable that's the case. But the way he kind of explained to you that uh, who you thought was your mother was not your mother came very bluntly and very abruptly. Do you do you still that fascinates me because my grandfather was the same way. If you didn't ask him directly a question about his past, uh, you wouldn't get anything out of him. But every now and again, he would drop these little nuggets are you able to shake that for your kid? Like, you're, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like each generation goes to this thing of like, especially men, men don't talk enough, you know, or communicate enough, you know, most of the time it's like, we don't know how, but like, are you able to shake that generational thing of like, uh, you know, not sharing everything, all your feelings or, or like, are you able to keep something secret? Are you able to share secrets? Like, how does that affect you now? I, I think I'm guilty of overshare even. I go so far with this. I'm telling a cab driver all the details of my life. He doesn't necessarily want to hear them. Just so I make sure I'm, I start with the truth. And just, yes, nice weather today. Yeah, the weather's nice. But boy, when I found out about my mother, I tell you, she really, it wasn't the woman I thought it was, you know. What does it have to do with the weather? I start just to make sure I'm being totally honest with the guy. I don't, I'm not telling any lies or withholding information. I give my whole life story. I love not want to hear it. But I, I'm very good oh, at that, great. actually. And it, I came by it with a lot of hard work and a lot of hard knocks on the head, you know, doing things that yeah. I didn't need to do. But it always essential to get me right now seated in this chair talking to you where everything is sublime. Yeah, man, it, it is crazy. I mean, like that's that's uh, something that my friends and I are way more like open about, like uh, my guy friends and I like we tell each other we love each other. We ask how everybody's doing. We try to check in with everybody because it is that thing of like man, I like if our parents talked or our grandparents talked enough about what they were going through, maybe they would have been happier. Maybe they would have been better off. Maybe, they, you know, not to say that they weren't necessarily, but like, who knows? You know what I mean? Like it could have changed everything. Um, so we're trying to cor correct that kind of stigma. But I see what you mean about oversharing sometimes. I feel like I can, I can tend to be I talk way too much. I mean, you know, you know me for a little bit now. I talk way too much. Uh, you talk <laughs> like the perfect amount. I like everything you say. Oh, thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, was there when you were going back through this book? Uh, you're very, you get very in depth. You're very personal. Um, was it, or were you able at the point in your life when you wrote this to look at it as an objective observer, or did you have to stop on occasion as you were writing it 
to relive the memory to kind of go, oh, you know what? I may not have dealt with this particular situation all the way through. I need to pause for a second. Most of them were things I had worked out a long time ago, but there were a few things that came out that I hadn't thought about in a while that I needed to address and talk to people about and make amends for or to mm -hmm. uh, speak my mind about. Maybe not necessarily amends in every case, just kind of speak the truth to the way I remembered things that happened. But there's very little of that. I long ago, long ago, put all that behind me by, you know, being part of a 12-step program where one makes amends and, uh, you know, tries to uh, move forward after making those amends. And whether or not people accept it, that's none of your business. You know, what other people think of me is none of my business. And you occasionally, right. I, I occasionally forget that one, but I'm pretty good at, at that right now. I don't have a lot of ego involved in those matters, and that uh, makes life a lot more pleasurable, I find. Yeah, um, I was inspired by how uh, how freeing it seemed you were when you were writing. You know, w when I was reading this book, um, you didn't hold back anything, as far as I know. I mean, I, I it felt like everything was laid out on the table. And as I was kind of reading it, I was wondering if I could ever, uh, hoping that I could get to that point someday too. I'm like, wow, could I really look at my life like this and be this honest about it? And maybe my parents and maybe, you know, other facets of things I've done and, and you know, whatever. Because that kind of honesty has got to be freeing. It's got to feel like a weight lifted off your shoulder, especially to get it in print. Like you were carrying all this for a long time. Probably nobody really knew about it except your close friends and family. But now everyone knows. Do you feel like a weight's lifted a little bit? Big time. And one great example is uh, Parkinson's. I have Parkinson's mm -hmm. and have had it since 2004. Didn't know I had it because I was in pretty right. good shape. And so I just kept it from really, you know, blossoming, if you will, or becoming strong enough to really affect me in a bad way. So I, uh, I, in 2016, was diagnosed and became clear that I had it. Two separate neurologists diagnosed me with Parkinson's, so I, I know I have it, but I kept it a secret. I didn't want to lose work about it, John. You know, I thought I, people sure. would be afraid to hire me. I'm going to be like shaking on camera, what have you, which wasn't the case with me ever. I'm, what little shaking I've done, very, very subtle, and I could just hold on to a a table or a chair or a prop, you know, a shovel or something in a scene or, a, uh, you know, some other thing I can hang on to and I don't shake at all. But I was afraid of that. Now having let go of that and announced to the world that I have Parkinson's, it's been mm -hmm. very, very freeing. So that was one last one I was holding on to that, you know, even though it seemed like for a higher purpose, it wasn't helping me at all. Nobody's right. shy about hiring me now. The book has been out for a while. I've got work that's coming yeah. now that the strike has ended. So, you know, we live in secrecy at our own peril. Ooh, that's a great quote, man. I really like, I, that's a great way to put it. Uh, what, what is the Parkinson's community like now that you're kind of like out in the open and stuff with it? Um, is that, are, are you, are you that type of person? Do you enjoy that type of community where you can kind of like, I don't know if there's a group of all of actors that, you know, kind of get together and talk about it or like, do you have your own family, friends, that kind of thing? Or are you just managing it on your own? Shockingly, I'm not really part of any group yet, though I, I attempt to, it's been really just since October 3rd and the book came out that, uh, you know, I, I feel safe in approaching such groups. But I do have many people that have had Parkinson's or have gotten it since I got in 2016. People that have had it longer than that that have contacted me hearing that I now have it through the grapevine. And uh, those people are of great support. But uh, a larger group of support where it's all very much out in the open. Like I, I intend to contact, uh, you know, several prominent people that I know that have it 
and be part of their network, right. Michael J. Fox being one of them. And he had it very young. I got it much older, but there's, I'm sure there's no good time to get Parkinson's, but right. right now is a much less horrible time to get it because of this. That's where it's at right now in 2023. I'm showing you my hands. There's no trembling. I could pass the sobriety checkpoint very easily because uh, I have, you know, dopamine kind of derivatives, carbidopa, levodopa kind of things that you can take. And for extra credit, my wonderful wife has me doing a hyperbaric chamber, which can help and it does help me. Glutathione, which can help and it does help me. Something called NAD, which can help and it does help me. Stem cells. At Stem Cell of America, I go there and get stem nice. cells, which does help me. So I'm again, I'm not a doctor. Mm. I'm not suggesting people do anything different than what their doctor tells them to do. But I've had great success with these things that I'm taking in addition to the AMA sanctioned wonderful neurological things that they have today, you know, that are widely accepted as a good, good relief for people who have Parkinson's. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic, man. You've got such a positive attitude about like ever since I first talked to you, you've got a positive attitude about the world, about uh, your health, about everything else. Is there something that surprised something that surprised you while you were writing the book about yourself? I mean, other like for for me, I think it's still everything's on an upswing for you. Not 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 just like not that bad stuff doesn't happen to you. I'm just saying like you you seem to handle it where you're like, okay, this is the issue, this is the problem, whether it's external and it's in the world or whether it's in your personal life, there's an upswing. But did you find anything else out about yourself after having written this? I had done most of those discoveries long ago. I even, I started reading Alan Watts out when I, you know, back when I was out there drinking. And I started reading Alan Watts in 1972. Right. And so I thought, well, this is great. He, he's talking about enlightenment. Let me try to find enlightenment in a bottle of Stoli. You know, and I tried to find, it's not really enlightenment when you get it from a bottle of vodka. I think it's more numbness. And you don't get to really experience something, anything yep. good or bad. You don't get to learn any lessons because you're not feeling the pain. And you don't get to enjoy much pleasure because you're not feeling that either. You're just kind of numb. So I discovered that path yeah. years ago, and but I still wasn't very good at implementing it. It was only when I got when I got sober that I started to really understand. I remember one big breakthrough day for me was this, John. I was in the driveway of our home. We now had a home, my wife and I, Ingrid, my first wife and I, we had two wonderful children. We had this cute little house, our starter house. And I was in the driveway putting all the, my wife was helping me put the suitcases in the back and she wasn't putting them in right, John. It was not a good way to stack the suitcase. And I was, you know, trying to keep myself from berating her out here in the driveway in public and just trying to talk to her in a very condescending, mansplaining way. I was very upset. I was clearly upset mm -hmm. about the way that the luggage was going in the back of the car because we were trying to get to Monterey for vacation. Don't you understand? I want to get on the road. We got to get, and I finally realized <laughs> the vacation doesn't begin when you get up to beautiful Monterey. It's a beautiful town. I'm not saying it's not lovely there and I want to go there. Right. It's fantastic. But right. the journey is <laughs> begins in the driveway before you even get on the road to get there. Right now is the journey. We're Absolutely. on our way to Monterey, you and I right now, yeah. wherever we think we're going six months or six years from now. We're part of, that's part of the journey yeah. there right now. It's not the destination. It is, in fact, that word I just mentioned, which is the journey. The journey is the reward. And uh, if, if you yeah, can man, dig that absolutely. one, you're going to be just fine. Man, and by the way, I hope you and I do get to go to Monterey together. I would love that. Uh <laughs> I would love nothing. Monterey Pop Festival. Let's, Let's do it. it happen. There's another good one that's, that speaks about all this kind of stuff. A great saying 
I can't remember who said it first, but it's a very good one. Don't just do something, stand there. Because I'm always, not everybody needs this. There are people that are, you know, maybe uh, too mellow, what have you. I'm not one of them. I'm a type A personality, so it's definitely for me and all the type A's out there. I've got, I've got to save the, the world. We've got to save the, <laughs> clean, let's clean up the air, clean up the water. We're going to do this, we do that. But wait a sec, what about the styrofoam, CFCs? Okay, the rainforest, you know, all this stuff, right. all important. I'm not trying to take away from any of those things right. I just rattled off. Air quality, water quality, the, you know, the ozone depletion, you know, the, the rainforest, all very important. But you can't do, don't try to do nine jobs poorly. Do one right. job well. Just focus on just the clean air for this year, or this month, or this day, or this moment, or whatever. Just do one thing at a time. And more importantly, before you begin to do any of that, get yourself centered. Get yourself some measure of serenity so you can go out there and accomplish these things. And people know, we, but don't you understand the urgency? We've got to save this. So many people are homeless. Yeah. Not easy for you to say, but Jesus Christ, buddy, we got to save the home. I want to do that too, but get yourself centered and stable. One of the things that kind of resonated with me, and I feel like we have a bit of a, um, a connection with, and I'd love to you know, just kind of pick your brain about it, because you had said in the book that you, know, you had your... Um, you know, difficulties with your father, but you loved him deeply, obviously. And I just lost my dad a year ago on the November 6th. It'll be a year. It was a year, November 6th. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd written this thing when I, when he, when he had passed away because people who did know me and obviously my family and stuff like that knew that my dad was a complicated person, was not perfect by any stretch of the imagination had, you know, my mom was his like his third wife, you know, and um, he had kids before, and then he was kind of involved in the mob a little bit, like just, just not, you know, a very complicated human being, but people didn't understand. Like I talked to him every night, you know what I mean? Like I had to let a lot of that. And not that, not that your dad and my dad are similar. I'm just saying like having a difficult relationship. No, they're very similar. I'll tell you right oh, okay. now, everything I'm hearing from you, they're very similar. Carry on. So, so there was, there was that, you know, connection. And, but the thing was, is that he cared a lot in his own way. And it's very hard. Do you, did you find it hard to, um, you know, explain that to people? Because I don't think people to this day understand. I talk to him every night, you know, I wait, we, you know, he was always up late. It's probably where I get my nightlife you know, in my brain from where I, or I, I prefer being awake. So two o'clock in the morning I would come and we talk and then that's gone now. But like, but people didn't understand. It was a very hard thing to explain. Here's the thing that helps me with my dad, my relationship with that wonderful man. And he was that he did the best he could with what he was given. He got better from what his parents were like with him. And I'd like to think I got better from what my dad was like with me and my mother. It was hard for me to forgive her for a while because she left when I was one year old, but under what conditions which did she leave? Did she just leave out of her own volition? Was she forced to leave? Was it some boys club that said, look, you gave birth to these babies, but Ed Begley wants to take over from here. They're going to live with him. Bye. Thanks for birthing two children. I have no idea. But she was a very, she was a hoarder too. She had stuff stacked up to the ceiling. But I saw what her life was like when she was young. And she, like my dad, did the best with what she was given. And so if I can do that myself and be better by my children, my, my children are better than that with their, with my grandchildren, with their children. I just feel I'm, I'm very lucky at each turn. So people do the best with people who aren't even trying. Those are the ones that are difficult to deal with people that don't even give it a go. Yeah. 
but my parents certainly did, and God bless right. them. And and you know, it's just funny that just as you're saying that, you know, that they did the best they could and they did better than their parents. I'm just thinking of it now. His dad, you know, beat the ever loving hell out of him and uh, a few of his yeah. other brothers. But my dad, I've just thought, never laid a hand on me. So I mean, that's I, I that's there that's kind go. of something that's, you know, yeah. I guess in his own way, he was like, that's I'm going to change that about it. So that's interesting. Um, is there, are there people in your life? I mean, obviously there are, but do you find yourself to be, um, when you're dealing with problems, uh, maybe not now, cause you just said like you do kind of overshare, but over the years, as you've grown as a person, um, do you try to deal with stuff on your own first? How do you manage that kind of, that kind of stuff? Any, you know, um, or do you have people in your life that you've connected with and reached out to and been like, Hey, look. I'm struggling right now. Can you help me out? I deal with a lot of things myself, but those things I can't handle. I'm very happy to farm out to others that have greater expertise. Mm -hmm. You know, some things people predicted I'd have a real bad uh, catastrophe waiting for me with my finances because I've uh, I've always done the books myself. I had a business manager briefly in 84 through 88, but I had done it before that prior to 84, 67 through 84. I did it myself. Now I was doing it again in 88. People said, oh, you're going to file for bankruptcy. You're going to lose all your money. You can't do it yourself. You're an actor. Don't, I don't want you thinking about payroll taxes when you're right. trying to act. Please don't do that. But the fact is I actually love doing it. I get pleasure nice. out of it. It's like a crossword I get to do every night at the hotel room, you know, the city that I'm filming in where I'm doing a movie or a TV <laughs> show in or going doing a public appearance. I bring my printer with me and some corporate checks and personal checks. <laughs> And it's like doing the crossword. It's fun for the jumble or the wordle or, you know, connections or one of those games that I love doing it's too. Incredible. It's not a drudgery. It's just part of my life. I, you know, you could farm it out to somebody, but then that costs yep. money too. And I, I just love doing it. It's a fun game I get to play. And it turns out I'm very good at it. Yeah, that's the that's the epitome of making work play, man. I, I, I'm not good at any of that. I'm, I'm struggling with business shit as we speak. I think people that do some of those jobs try to make it seem like voodoo, like it's so complicated. Oh, you could never understand this. Woo, it's very complicated. <laughs> Payroll taxes. Woo, but it's just you buy QuickBooks, you know, you install it on your computer, you enter the data, and it pays the payroll taxes for you. There's not a lot of guesswork about it. You just do what yeah. it tells you to do, and it works out very well. Um, uh, I, I want to touch on something else that you'd said in the book real quick because it's popping into my head right now. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton, one of my all-time like probably in the top 10 of my favorite character actors loved that dude in everything he was in since I was a kid. I think the first time I saw him was in a Christmas, a Christmas movie he did when I was a kid that I loved when it was I, blanking on the name of it now, but he plays an angel and uh, it was, it was a great movie, but anyway, loved seeing him and everything, but I didn't know you guys had like a buddy, buddy drinking relationship, like Peter O'Toole and Ed Harris did, you know, or uh, like, that's awesome. Like I want that book. I want that movie. I want to know all the shenanigans that you guys did together. They were many. We had quite a few shenanigans. We had a very good time in the seventies and uh, Harry yeah. continued to have a good time for the remainder of his, of his days. And I was his friend right to the end there with him, mm. you know, right when he passed, I, I loved him deeply, a great guy and a great source of enlightenment, enlightenment to me because he's the one that turned me on to Alan Watts. He and my friend Neil Rhodes. Neil Rhodes gave me the book. Uh, my drinking buddy and dear friend uh, gave me the book called This Is It by Alan Watts. But then when Harry Dean Stanton started talking about it too, I had two close friends, Neil Rhodes and Harry Dean Stanton, both talking about the same thing. Wait a minute, this must be good. They both are into this guy. Who's this guy again, Alan Watts? Let me try reading a little more of this. 
and, and finally, or finally the penny dropped and I went, oh, wow, this is something, this is what I need more than anything. Cause I was always rushing everything, John, I would just rush anything, right. trying to rush serenity, you know, which is the yeah. ironic title of the book, the temple yeah. of tranquility and step on it. You know, you can't rush that. You have to allow it to come to you and it will come quickly. If you really, the teachers, if, if the student is ready, the teacher does appear. Mm -hmm. And that guy was Harry Dean, and he was very good about that sort of thing, and uh, quite an enlightened guy. And I, I'm grateful to this day that I knew him and was good friends with him. See, this this is why I love that you guys have, have these stories and are writing this kind of stuff down because you know, to the Temple of the Tranquility and step on it. There is this this kind of stuff puts people like myself who are I'm I'm like an I'm not diagnosed ADHD but I'm sure I've got it you can probably tell just by talking to me I'm a little nutty <laughs> like you know it, I'm sure it helps in my comedy and my stand up and the way I think which is great but like I I would like to slow it I, I try to take in as much as I possibly can there's there's a Kurt Vonnegut quote that I love um uh called if basically this is the shortened version of it but he says if this isn't nice i don't know what is and it's right. basically you know if you can stop and think about that and i try to but you know just from reading your book and stuff i've seen you kind of mastered it but i've always got this clock in my head like just the other day i was sitting around and i was like you know it was like six o'clock the sun's going down obviously because the you know the 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 uh time change time and everything change. yeah yeah and i was like i just wanted to apologize like I don't know to who, but I was like, man, I didn't get, I didn't, I, I've got so much more to do and people to talk to, and I didn't check on this person, and and I didn't do the thing I wanted to do, and I really wish I could slow that down, but you know, I see you, I see you, you've mastered it, so it kind of, you know, puts it in perspective for me and gives me a little hope, but it, man, it is hard to get the clock out of your head. Well, I, it was finally through woodworking that I finally began to learn my lesson. I had always been kind of handy and good with things. Mm. you know mechanical things and a little bit of skills with wood and metal making them into different things but nothing no great shakes but I, and I bought my first house and i couldn't afford to have people to do x y and z with it to put up some fencing here and make right. a table there so i went to la community adult school for ten dollars a semester in 1979 and i learned woodworking oh, i'm not God. kidding it was ten dollars a semester it was incredible That's and they had these great great tools there, a huge, you know, planer, big joiner, big drill press, a big, you know, everything. They had all these great cutoff saws, everything. And so I, I learned the basics of woodworking. It was easy for me because I already knew a fair amount of it already. And I read some books about it. So right. then I was doing it. And now the story begins, John, because in woodworking, I realized that I was doing the same thing I did with everything in my life. I would go buy the wood, go to Bonhoeff Lumber and get the wood put it through the joiner, put it through the planer, you know, smooth the wood, then I'd cut the wood, and then I'd dowel the wood, and I'd glue the wood, and then I'd, you know, sand the wood, and then I'd go buy some more wood. And I just constantly, it was this, why was I doing it? Did I not enjoy it? Right. I was just always rushing to make the next, but I, then I'd, I'd finally make that table or that little rack out of walnut or whatever wood I was using. And I, you know, well, I got to get some more wood. I was just never enjoying it. And I finally decided I would be, love every step of the way. Right. The first moment I could feel that wood going through the saw, the feel of it is something very special if you've done any woodworking. Just feeling the saw going through the blade, and it's kind of beautiful the way it right. works. And yeah, you make me want to do some. Yeah. And it just, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the sandpaper starting with a 50 or 80 grit sandpaper and then 100 grit. 
then 150, and then 200, the smoothest, smoothest, you know, 600 finally good sandpaper. And each step of the way was beautiful and part of a process that was just lovely. And I began to enjoy things actually as they were happening because I did it with my acting. You know, I wanted to get an acting job. Get, come on, agent, get me a job. Get me an yeah. appointment, something. Got, good, got me an appointment. Study for the appointment. Do the audition. Got the job. Get When do they pay? They pay on Thursday for the weekend of the previous Saturday. Right. Get the check, pay the bills, get another job. I was mm -hmm. doing it with everything, with wood, with acting, with everything. And I decided I'd slow down and enjoy this moment right now. That's with great. a man named John. And I'm here. <laughs> so we're not together in the same room. We're together in other ways. And it's quite sublime if you let it be. So I hope people, if somebody like me, a type A maniac like me, as you'll see if you read the book, I was out oh, of yeah. my friggin' mind, just yep. totally insane, totally yep. crazy for years, for decades. And if somebody like me can get it, then there's hope for all. Yeah, man. When is it, I was curious about that with all the stuff that you talked about in your book. How much of it bleeds into the characters that you've portrayed over the years into your acting? Do you let it or do you completely separate from it? Like, how, how do you manage that? How do you set that dial? I use whatever tool is helpful when playing a role. You know, I just, if there's something from my past that's handy, some different color that I want to put on the canvas, you know, something that might help the palette, the yeah. choices of different colors, of different moods and what have you. But one thing that was very helpful as an actor, and this is really, it would help a person as a director, as a writer, as anything. This guy, Roy London, said it to me in 1993. I was studying with him. He's a very good acting teacher in Los Angeles. And I studied with him and other wonderful people, Peggy Fury and Stella Adler and great, great wow. people. So I'm studying with this guy, Roy London, working on the scene. And he said, you know, one thing I've always liked to say to people, you know what I find the most interesting thing to watch it when an actor's working? I said, what's that? What's that, uh, Roy? And he said, uh, how a character deals with pain. Said, yeah, that's profound. Wow, how character. Oh, you know what? Look at the time. I got to go. I got to get home and I work tomorrow. So thanks for the help of the scene, buddy. I got out to my car, went, Jesus Christ, what a crock of shit. How I'm in pain. I'm in pain. That's what I really want to see. I'm in pain all the time. Oh, Garcia Lorcan's blood wedding. Oh my God, I'm in pain. <clears throat> Life is pain. What a, and I realized that wasn't what he said at all. Roy did not say how a character exists in pain he said how our character deals with pain right right how do you keep the lid on that pot that wants to boil over how do you as meryl streep as sophie and sophie's choice keep that secret of what she did what her choice was as sophie what that was that now you understand the whole first part of the movie you know bob de niro and raging bull you get to yeah. see him as jake lamata and who he is and how he's tortured even though he's such a skilled athlete you know he has all these He's in a great deal of pain. Harold Lloyd hanging from a clock. Laurel and Hardy carrying a piano. They fall carrying a piano. Could you imagine falling carrying a piano and the piece of, big piece of piano fall on you? Very yeah, yeah. painful. But we're laughing our ass off because it's hysterical. How yeah. a character deals with pain is the essence of everything that is interesting to watch. Viola right. Davis and anything. Pick anything. Joaquin Phoenix and anything. Look at what he's doing. Yeah. Just how a character deals with pain. And pain right. can mean conflict. It can be physical pain. It can be emotional pain. It can be, you know, that kind of negativity. How our character deals with that is what's compelling to watch. Roy was 100% right. Yeah, that's that's incredible, man. Uh, was he, is he somebody that you talked to still over the years about that kind of stuff? 
Sadly, he passed away over a decade ago now. Oh, Wonderful acting teacher, a great guy. I studied with him once and once only to my dismay. I, I only worked with him once and then uh, I got busy and didn't need any help on a few things. And then he passed and I couldn't uh, work with him anymore, but he helped a good many people. Yeah. Um, I love teachers like that, man. I mean, they stay with you forever, whether they're here or not. Uh, and I've got a few that are very much like that. And I, now I'm thinking like, I should probably call that person uh, <laughs> and catch up with them and see how they're doing. Definitely do. Um, when, when you, uh, a couple things too, when you talked about, um, it's wild to me that, that you had an interaction with Charles Manson. When you watch a movie like, um, you know, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? are you, are you, are you, are you now back in that same spot, like at the ranch? Like, are you picking things out? Like, that's not quite how that looked. Like, you know, what did you think about that? Looking at that again? I love that movie. Quentin Tarantino is a brilliant writer and director, of course. But right. uh, I looked at that movie and it really seemed very close to what I experienced there. The look of it, the feel of it. They did not shoot. I don't think they shot at the Spawn Span Ranch. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Mm. But it looked very similar to what that, how that exists in my memory. And, uh, yeah, it was a kind of a ragtag ragtag group of hippies. What it, is all it was, and right. I had been in that kind of situation before and smoked a joint with people like that before. So there was nothing noteworthy about it. The only interesting thing it was slightly different. There's a guy that wanted to get his music heard by people, and right. All right, guys. So in true dystopia fashion, this is where Ed's camera cut out, um, and then when he came back into the room, for some reason, the footage has seemed to be misplaced. So in short, we wound up talking about Laurel Canyon a bit, all that kind of scene, um, the amazing musicians and stuff he's known, and just celebrity in general, and how people like to be treated basically um, normally. Um, and then it kind of picks up right. But we were just talking about nerding out by people that you know, uh, you know, and that is that's one of those things that I think. You're right. Everybody just kind of wants to be treated normally, but it's so nice to just have that feeling of like, oh my God, is this really happening? Do I know the, again, same thing with you, sir. Like I, I really like, it's a privilege to get to speak with you and to just know you a little bit and stuff. And it does just so you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, holy shit. I love that. It's the Ed Bagley Jr. So yeah, just so you know that that's what I'm thinking sometimes. Same to you, my <laughs> like, friend. You're a very talented guy and I'm honored to be with you yet again. Thank you. Thank you so much, man. I'm going to ask you the last three questions that I ask every guest. Um, the first question being, I think we may have done a couple of these, but there's a new one. So um, uh, if you go back in time and talk to your younger self, what piece of advice would you give yourself that would help you right now? Slow down. Ooh, very nice. I love that. That's also in the book as well. That's great. Great tie in. Um, second question, what had to end in your life, good or bad, that led you to where you are today? What had to end was my feeling that I was not worthy and that I was not smart. I had all these lies put into my head by various people for different mm -hmm. reasons. I forgive them. I feel compassion for them, but they had their own challenges to deal with. But I don't carry that around anymore. That is very, very, very deep, man. I love that. Um, uh, so last question is, if this was a genuine dystopia, um, more so than it is today, and you woke up tomorrow and you found out that it was going to be everyone's last day on earth. Um, what would you be doing and who would you be doing it with? I'd assemble my family as best I could and sit in the backyard and try to, to just be in the moment, whatever it was. Beautiful.
Dystopia tonight.